I absolutely couldn't stop. I knew I needed to stop. I acknowledged that I was a drug addict. I knew that I was going to probably die if I didn't stop. I had been ODing, stopped breathing a number of times in the middle of the night. Like waking up literally with someone on, like a girlfriend on top of me, like basically banging on my chest, like freaking out because I wasn't breathing. Maintaining a supply of these pills was really my only focus. And I had never worked harder at anything in my life. I had never been as committed to anything in my life before that point, which is fascinating in and of itself, right? Because here I was, I was running this magazine and I had a big job at details, but this was really the only thing that I paid any true, true attention to. Taking pills were my feedings and I was feeding this beast of this addiction. And so I ultimately got to 15 at a time and I was doing it about four times a day. And so it was a constant search for pills. It's all I cared about. That's Dan Paris. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, how goes it? What's the word? My name is Rich Roll. I am indeed your host. Let's do this podcast thing. Here's what we know every single day, over 130 people in the U.S. die from an opioid overdose. 40% of those involved a prescription. About one quarter of all patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain end up misusing them. That is 10.3 million people. How about this stat? About 80% of people who use heroin first misuse prescription opioids. Think about that. I mean, really think about that. A tragic epidemic of untold proportions, opioid addiction has basically precipitated this massive, massive public health crisis, destroying millions of lives unnecessarily, while also taxing our economy at the rate of $78.5 billion per year. So how do we get here? Well, we got here because in the late 1990s, big pharmaceutical companies started pushing these powerful pills, stuff like Vicodin and oxycodone, on healthcare providers as these panaceas for pain. And they did it with the reassurance that patients would not become addicted. But we all know how that turned out. I mean, irrespective of that, widespread misuse ensued, which led millions of Americans to suffer profound substance abuse disorders, decimating lives, families, and communities along the way. So today I share one man's journey into the depths of opioid addiction despair. What happened? what it was like, and how he ultimately found a way out. His name is Dan Paris. It is quite the story, and it's all coming up in a couple few. But first. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, 
no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing, I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions. I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients, faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem 
a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, Dan. So this guy was hardly a born media insider. He's a kid who grew up awkward, obsessed with magic, but he had this gift, this gift for the written word and this shrewd eye for culture. And it was these talents that prematurely catapulted him to crazy heights in the fast-paced world of glossy magazine publishing. By 24, he was covering catwalks in Paris as the European editor for W Magazine. And just a few short years later, he landed this coveted gig as editor of Details Magazine, which, for those who don't know, was very much an arbiter of all things cool at the time. And that was a post that he held for 15 years. Along the way, Dan nurtured this secret, seeking refuge in opioids to solve a profound imposter syndrome as he navigated this high-voltage netherworld of fashion designers, and celebrities, and media moguls, and premieres, parties, and after parties. And just like so many people, it's a relationship that began with a back injury and a simple prescription. And what ensued was this love affair, a love affair that quickly escalated to 60 pills a day. Of course, the pills turn on him. There's a betrayal that ensues, this best friend that turns dark, and a profound addiction that took him places he never thought he would go and produced more instances of incomprehensible demoralization than you know he cares to remember and essentially eroded the moral fabric of his life. But by a power greater than himself, Dan found a way out. He's now 12 years sober, and he recollects the vivid details of this experience in his new book. It's called As Needed for Pain. And you guys know how much I love a good addiction yarn. And this one, <laughs> this one is amazing. It's a harrowing, but also at times humorous, coming of age memoir that offers a very rare glimpse into New York media's past at a time when print magazines really mattered. And it's this dissection of a life teetering on the edge of destruction and a chronicle of, of what it took for Dan to pull back from the brink of an addiction that very nearly killed him. Today, he shares his powerful tale from depravity to salvation. And even if the opioid epidemic hasn't affected you directly, chances are, I can bet, that somebody in your life suffers. And if this is the case, my hope is that 
this conversation helps you better understand the cunning, baffling, and powerful nature of this disease, and that it provides hope to those that currently suffer because there is a solution. Before we get into it, I just want to quickly thank my friends, Amy Dresner from episode 341 and Jeff Gordonier from episode 453, both of whom sort of simultaneously introduced me to Dan. And of course, thank you to Dan for being so open and so honest and vulnerable today. This conversation is a doozy. I'm better for having it and may it impact you similarly. Here's Dan. for coming up here and doing this. I am super happy to be here. Um, our mutual friend, uh, Jeff Gordonier, is the one who keyed me on to everything that you're up to. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you, man. I'm excited Lots to talk to you to talk also. About. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Jeff is uh, Jeff's a pretty awesome dude and, and um, uh, is uh, has been really supportive, uh, has been a really good friend to me. Uh-huh. You did an event with him recently, right? Um, he came to an event that I was a part of recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, uh, like a reading, uh, near Jeff and I live in the same town mm-hmm. and, um, and then worked at details together for, for many years also. Uh, so uh, like a bunch of those stories that he talked about when he was right. on your podcast. The Keanu Reeves sandwich the, story. The Keanu Reeves yeah. sandwich story, the sex doll repair, right. the repair, man, that was, that was, uh, details. Uh, but I did this event in in New York and and uh, near where we live, and Jeff came mm. to show his support. Yeah, and, cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, he texted me this morning just to make sure that I was you know like all up to speed <laughs> on everything, and uh, and he he reminded me um, of of just what a heyday it was at Details during that time. I mean, you were really there um, at a period where magazines were hyper relevant. And you had quite, you know, the long leash to work with all kinds of amazing writers and really indulge long form storytelling in a way that you just don't see that often now. I like to I like to think that that I got to ride the last great wave mm-hmm. of magazine publishing. Now that's not to say that there's still not great stuff going on in magazines right. today, because of course there is. Um, but but back then, uh, when we relaunched Details in 2000, uh, there were still huge budgets, like you said, incredibly right. long leash, really the, the tons of autonomy, the ability to, to do what we wanted to do and send writers off on crazy adventures and then have them come back and publish, you know, six, seven, eight thousand words. Uh, which, which was, you know, which was a real treat and right. something that's that's a little bit more rare today. And deploy these amazing writers like Absolutely. Jonathan Safran Foer and and Augustin Burroughs who blurbed your book and like yeah. all these incredible literary talents. Yeah, so we were able to sort of tap into that and give them the the opportunity to write and go for uh-huh. it. And um, and it seems like that has sort of dried up a little bit. You know, yeah. obviously, but um, it really was. It was. It felt like a golden era. You know, and and I was really. Uh, I'm super grateful to have to have uh, been a part of that. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, your story and the book is. You know, it's sort of equal parts. It's it's like a a toned down. Uh, it, it's like a, a a toned down version or or the an insecure person's telling of a bright lights, big city right. type narrative. You know what I mean? Like you're, you mute um, 
the kind of high wire act of of editing this you know very prominent magazine and kind of navigating you know the 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 canyons of lower manhattan and all of that but you know when i when i think about like that time and what you were doing it just i mean that was like a rock star job that you had it was and and one that i was in no way ready for and that's not like false humility like no no they shouldn't have given it to me no they (laughs) shouldn't have given it to me but you know they gave me this job running details i was 28 years old i had never run any anything like that well you're running w in paris prior to that right? i was i was i was running w magazine's european bureaus Uh prior to that but that you know very, it was a very lean operation, you know, by comparison. Right. So then I was given this job at Details and, and you know, moved back to New York uh, and and had to kind of figure all of this stuff out, had to hire a team, and, and I had never really done any of that before. And what's interesting is you're, you, you don't like sort of cut the figure of the person you expect to be in that job. First of all, you were super young, but you're like, you know, you talk about this in the book, like you're listening to Hootie and the Blowfish, even though you were W, like you don't really care about fashion. Like how does this, how do you end up oh, with the, being in uh, this arbiter of style and culture? Well, I, you know, I think just just a quick word about my taste in music, <laughs> um, because yeah. I've just been- a, Jeff must give you a lot of shit oh, about Oh man, that. you have no idea. Cause you he's got like, no his idea. taste is dialed. I mean, and, and listen, with all due respect to Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, I, God I, love them. You know, you know? I, I wouldn't yeah. even put them that high on my list. Uh-huh. I mentioned them in the book. Rick for sure. Springfield. But it was like, it totally, <laughs> it was like, it was, I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I was born in the 70s, but like I really started kind of like absorbing culture in the 80s. And so, like, for me uh, in Baltimore, you know, it was stuff like, you know, it was like Journey and Farner and mm. Sticks and, and, right. and, and bands like that. Um, and so that, that just sort of stuck with me. So a journey in particular is something that people just like are merciless about when they, when they, when they tease me, you know, people, cause I here you're right. You're absolutely right. Here I was now running this magazine and I would have all these editors who are plugged in. Some had worked at Rolling Stone and spin and, you know, they knew these worlds and they would come to me to pitch stories on bands that like. I had just only maybe even just heard of, in some cases had not heard of. And then you have people like Jeff and, and others who are like music, right? you know, freaks and junkies, you know, um, that were like, oh man, like, can we do something a little different, a little new agey, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a job, uh, it wasn't an, I wasn't an obvious person for that role. Um, but I think that's what, what led them to want to give it to me. You know, I think they wanted to try something different. I think mm. that the men's magazine landscape at that time uh, was changing very quickly. This was the era of what we called the lad magazines, like Maxim and right. stuff and things like that. And pretty like TNA driven and, and things like that, that just wasn't necessarily something that appealed to me. Right. So I... You know, and and the team that I assembled, you know, we came up with this I, I concept basically of of, you know, creating a magazine for for men, not necessarily beer and babes and barbecue and sports, you know, but but a new type of guy who 
could stand on his own two feet in lots of different ways and didn't didn't uh, need to have a woman in a wet T-shirt on the cover of a magazine yeah. in order for him to be like, oh, cool, I'll pick that up. So we started to kind of look at things a little differently. Yeah, it, it tapped the, the metrosexual zeitgeist nerve, I suppose. And it kind of gave guys permission to care about things like style and cool music and stuff like and that. And skincare. Right. And, and, and like, things, you know, right, yeah, right. totally. You know. Do you, uh, do you, did you know a guy named Jamie Hooper who ran Maxim? The name you sounds familiar, but, but no. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, but he was one of the guys that I ran around New York with when okay. I was living there like way back in the day. I feel like um, there were, but there were lots of guys like like that, and uh -huh. and this was what, and th and by the way, at this time in our culture, right around two thousand or even the late nineties, this this was all there was. Like this was this stuff was booming, right. absolutely booming. This was the 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 approach to to talking about masculinity, you know, and it was like you know fart jokes and and like the hottest women in bikini competitions, you know, vote online now, you know, I mean, right. and so like, and that, when I looked at that, I was like, hey, listen, that just doesn't like appeal to me, you know, and, and so, uh, so we kind of cobbled together this magazine that you're right, I think tapped the metrosexual vein and, and allowed us to look at with a, with a broader sort of filter, uh -huh. um, things that were affecting men's lives and things that men should care about where previously you, you, uh, you didn't see too many guys sort of like openly embracing a love of, you know, aftershave or, right. or you know, or, or whatever, <laughs> or cooking or architecture yeah. or design, whatever yeah. it is, you know? I remember just sort of thinking as I would page through that magazine around that time, during that period of time, like, is this for gay dudes or is this for me? Like, is this like, you know, it was sort of, yeah. it was sort of, it had a gay slant, but it wasn't overtly gay. Like it was meant to kind of capture that audience, but also be broader. That's, right? that's exactly right. Yeah. It, it was, it was meant to sort of smash the stereotype of what, what's a guy today, you know? Uh -huh. And, and we did everything that we could to sort of blur the line between gay and straight. And so uh, we would do stories that, that, people would look at and be like, hey, whoa, like, what, like, am That's I- That's a little bit too far out there know, for me. <laughs> am, as, a, as a straight guy, should yeah. I be reading this? But but uh -huh. it, the, the beauty of it is that it wasn't designed to be a magazine for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so we, we knew who our audience was and the audience grew very quickly and the audience responded to what we were doing. And, and I would just often say like, hey, like if this, if what we're doing is like bothering you or, or um, you know, uh, if you feel like it's sort of putting your masculinity or your idea of masculinity at risk, then th cool. You don't have to, you don't have to read it, you uh -huh. know? Uh, and that, that was fine. But, but to, to kind of blur that line a little bit and, and, and talk to men who may have been straight or may have been gay and, and aside from their, uh, sexual preference were had all of the same interests, uh -huh. and so this was our guy, right? And so, uh, but certainly not every guy. There's no question yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and perhaps not even you. 
and, right? Yeah, that's, and, the, that's the irony, right? And like, perhaps not you don't, even you me. Don't, you don't cut the figure of like the details reader, which is interesting. Uh, it, it is interesting because at the time when we when we relaunched the magazine with this sort of new um, uh, approach to, to to making content. Uh, I was out doing lots of press and promoting the, the the magazine, saying it's for guys like me. And meanwhile, I'm in a pair of like Converse All Stars right. and like ripped up jeans and a t-shirt and a hoodie, you know. Um, but I had just been living in Paris for for almost three years and had been exposed to this. The kind of European or kind of yeah. continental you sense could, like, of talk the language and absolutely, yeah. you know. And I would look at these guys, you know, and and uh, and I'd be like, oh, you know, that guy's definitely gay. And then like this, like you know, beautiful wife would would you know throw up. But like I was like looking at him and the way he had like his scarf wrapped around his neck and the way the uh -huh. suit maybe was a little more tapered than than the average American guy's <laughs> suit, or right. you know, listening to him talk about wine or art or whatever it is. And I was like, oh wow, like this is a really interesting approach to masculinity but right. no I I absolutely wasn't wasn't that guy I think I grew a little bit to become that guy but I was I was so deeply insecure with who I was I, I if I'm being perfectly honest with you I don't think I I know what kind of guy I was you know I really mm -hmm. I really don't and so it, it allowed me just to kind of be a journalist and and react to where I felt the culture was going, which is what I think we did at Details. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's take it back. Uh, let's play a little game I know you're familiar with called What It Was Like, What Happened, and What It's Like Now. Mm. <laughs> I know, <laughs> you I know, know the structure well. I do. of this. So, I do. Uh, so you, you're, you're from New York, you grew up in the suburbs outside of New York. I, I grew right? up in Baltimore. Oh, in Baltimore, that's yeah. right. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 I'm from DC, so. Uh, whereabouts? Right there, Bethesda. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. Not too far. Same thing. A lot of lacrosse. I know your brother was a big lacrosse not, star. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of lacrosse, kind of um, you know, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of star athletes, a um, lot of, uh, you know, crab cakes, a lot right. of, you know, whales on belts and things like that. Exactly. Also. Did you go to public high school? Or? I went to private high school, what, actually. What, I went to what? a school called Boys Latin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's Boys Latin and Gilman. That's exactly the right. Lacrosse. I went to Landon. So okay. Probably yeah, my, yeah. my high school probably played lacrosse against you guys. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm know. sure you did. You would not have played against me. <laughs> not though. me neither. Okay. You know, I wasn't partaking in that world at all. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so yeah, I grew up. That's where I grew up. Down right, there. cool. And you end up going to NYU. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So walk me through just your introduction to New York. Oh man, I I was in love with New York from from the moment I I went on my first visit, probably when I was thirteen or fourteen. Uh -huh. um, it felt like the perfect place for me because it, it seemed like the the ideal place for someone to just kind of get lost in a crowd, and and that's what I wanted to do. You know, um, you know, we talk about these lacrosse guys and mm. and and. If, if if you have you know listeners out there that don't know this culture, uh, it's a really interesting culture, right? I mean, it, it's but it's akin to football in Texas or right. you know um, you know basketball in different parts of the country and soccer now, of course. So, uh, but it's very at the time anyway. It was like super broy. Guys were like dipping mm -hmm. and yeah. and. Um, 
uh, I mean, it, this was this world uh, that I d- didn't belong to, nor really did I aspire to. Duck shoes. Totally, duck Dogs, shoes or yeah. bucks, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and like faded jeans and, and, um, and, you know, polo shirts, you know, with a collar up. Right. Um, it, was, it was stuff that, that like, other, like John Hughes and others, I think, have documented also incredibly well. But uh, it just wasn't my world. And so I, when I first went to New York, I was like, oh, wow, cool. Like this, this, this works for me because I can kind of escape here and, and, and maybe even kind of reinvent myself or recreate myself uh-huh. here. So I loved it from the moment I, I got there. Right. Um, what's interesting about your story is that y- you, would, you would suspect or predict that you know that young person in New York City gets introduced to drugs and alcohol pretty rapidly, and and the the the, the love affair and the decline would begin, you know, almost immediately. Right. But that's not your story. That's not my story. You know, I um, I was always in love with journalism. You know, so while while like the those sort of like kids, the, there were the lacrosse kids. I was like the high school newspaper guy. Mm-hmm. I was like super into magic tricks and like studying magic yeah. and stuff like that, which I I did like from from like as, for as far back as I can remember. And uh, so here I am in New York, and uh, you know, like home of every major media outlet. And I was like, oh my god, this is going to be amazing. And and I kind of started working for the for the NYU school paper and was taking these journalism courses. And, and when you take journalism courses at NYU, um, at least back then, the professors would bring in, you know, big media figures as guest lecturers and things like that. Uh-huh. So Dan Rather, who at the time was anchoring the CBS Evening News, came in and spoke and big newspaper writers and magazine editors were, were the faculty of uh, mm. of the NYU journalism program. So it was just absolutely amazing. And listen, I started drinking a little bit, smoking some pot and, and things like that. But I, I didn't, I wasn't going out. There were kids that, that got to NYU at, at, at 18 that just embraced the New York City nightlife in ways that, that I did not, mm-hmm. you know? And they would go to all of these hot clubs and this and that. And, you know, this was back at the time where Randy Gerber was just starting to sort of like open up tons of places in right. and around New York. And they would go to these places and I, I just didn't do that, uh-huh. you know? But um, no, my, my, my love affair with drugs, uh, like with so many things in my life, I was a late bloomer. <laughs> right, and, yeah. And you know, like yeah. loss of my virginity, uh-huh. uh, introduction to, 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 to drugs, like, you know, lots of Just stuff. Just a good Jewish boy. Just a good Jewish boy from right. the suburbs of Baltimore, you uh-huh. know? So the first main gig that you get is at the Times, right? New York Times? I was a copy boy at the uh-huh. New York Times and back when they had copy boys. I don't even know if that's something that exists there anymore, but it was such an amazing thing. It, it you know, the, the Times building has since moved, but they were back in Times Square on 43rd Street. And, and they, uh, they actually um, had uh, press. They would actually printed a, a portion of the papers uh, right there in the building, uh, on the yeah. ground floor of the building, and trucks would roll r- out right from that uh-huh. main floor. It was incredibly romantic. You know, if you were if you were a, a lover of journalism and, and a student of journalism, uh, this was like the ideal: being there and being in that newsroom. And um, it was a really kind of amazing experience for me. But I also got—I mean, I got reprimanded once for whistling. You know, like like uh-huh. I'm not like a whistler, but for some reason I was like, 
you know, and, and literally some editor was like, Hey, no whistling in the newsroom. Um, I was like, Whoa. got it. Yeah. All right. Um, but they would send me down. I worked like a 5 PM to 11 PM shift, or maybe it even was a little bit longer than that. Mm. And, uh, they would send me down to the, to the, to the press room to print, to pick up uh, first run copies. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I would bring a stack up to the newsroom and would like hand them out to the, to the various sort of news desks and would have ink all over my right. hands and my, and my wrist. So then you, you talk about, you know, there's this expression in journalism, you know, it being an ink stained wretch. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I literally was. So that it was, uh, it was a very cool place to be. Did you think you were gonna stay there and work your way up? hundred percent. Yeah. I, I had every intention of, of being a journalist and, in the mold of like David Halberstam right. or, or Woodward and Bernstein, you know, um, absolutely. So where does the magazine thing start to come about? You know, the magazine thing, well, listen, you know, I couldn't get a job. I graduated NYU um, with a degree in journalism uh, or dual degree, also history, but but main main focus on journalism and, and sent out like old school in envelopes with stamps into into yeah, mailboxes, yeah. you know, t- tons of resumes, and and just got like a flurry of, hey, we'll keep your resume on file letters like back at me, you know, including one from Details Magazine, you know, interestingly, and and um, so I was just desperate for for a job. I wanted to stay in New York, but but time was running out from a from a financial standpoint, and. Um, I ended up getting a job at, at a company called Fairchild Publications, which has changed a lot over the years, but at the time uh, published Women's Wear Daily mm-hmm. and a number of other papers and, and magazines, including W Magazine. So you say you're a late bloomer, but you it seems like you didn't waste too much time moving moving up quickly. You know, it's interesting. I think like late bloomer with like, Everything life experience with with everything related to life experience, Uh with the exception of my career. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, no, I I, my career moved very quickly, and and um, it's puzzling to many, uh, myself included. uh, But it's that self deprecating thing. It is (laughs) um, insecurity. It is well, you know. Listen. Obviously, you're very good at what you do. I mean, you know, listen, you, you held, you know, these two, you know, pretty prominent posts and you held the details post for 15 years. I did. I did. So. Um, yeah, like my career, my career has been pretty amazing and 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 I feel blessed. I really do. And uh-huh. I have a lot of gratitude for that uh, and for the fact that I was able to hold on to the details job. But, but uh, I was a copy boy at the New York Times. I, I started then, I became a uh, research editor, a research assistant, or like fact checker basically at Esquire magazine, uh-huh. uh, which I had always you know loved. And then I got this job working initially at Fairchild Publications for a, 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 a um, publication that's no longer around. It was called the Daily News Record or DNR. Uh, which was the male equivalent of Women's Wear Daily. So uh-huh. it covered the- Like industry rag for fashion. N- for, for men. Yeah. You know, and and I was a knitwear, sweaters and knitwear editor. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> I, 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 and I dove into that <laughs> yeah. with, with all the uh-huh. gusto that any journalist on a new beat should. Uh, but, but very shortly after I got that job, really like within six months, I was asked if I wanted to come over to, to Women's Wear Daily for a really coveted job there on what was the iPage 
EYEI page. And that was their like party and events coverage. So mm. I went literally from like covering sweater manufacturers, you know, and going to conventions of like knitwear companies right, right. to going out and covering movie premieres and, mm. and, and going to all of these events and meeting and interacting with all of these like extraordinary cultural figures mm -hmm. within the period of like six months. And then how long before they ship you off to Paris? I got shipped off to Paris uh, probably three years late after that, uh -huh. three or four years after that. Yeah, that must have been crazy it being there, going all like fashion shows and you know hanging out with Karl Lagerfeld and like all these you know wacky people from that world. It was it was a yeah it was a very weird time for me because I that hadn't been my life and that hadn't uh -huh. been my passion and yeah you weren't like the kid uh, who was reading you know nope <laughs> those magazines I'm, as a I'm kid afraid not yeah, you know fair. but what I was was it was a was a journalist and was an editor who who um, really loved storytelling and and really loved to get people to talk. Uh, so even this, you know, me being on the other side of this conversation is is, is something that I'm not entirely comfortable uh -huh. uh, doing. This is not my comfort well, zone. Well, you got a book out, so you got to so, get comfortable with this. Absolutely, and, yeah. and I'm I'm working through it. <laughs> yeah. But but I oh, I really preferred and still do to be on the other side and to be the one asking the questions and kind of drawing the story yeah. out. So so whether or not I had an interest in in fashion, I, look, I didn't even speak French. Right. Let, let's start there. You know, they they said, "Hey, we're gonna. How would you feel about going and 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 running the Paris office uh, for W Magazine?" And I was like, "Great." You know, uh -huh. I was twenty five. Yeah. And uh, I was like, "Cool. Okay. What do I need to do?" You know. Well, you know, how do you speak any French? I was like, "No, I don't." And started to take some lessons, which I didn't really pay very close attention yeah. to, which is like a huge regret. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, one of the things that was interesting about that time I, that I read um, about you is that, you know, this, this, I guess you could consider it a weakness that you didn't have this inherent like affinity for this world or this knowledge base for it, but you turn that into a strength. So when you're interviewing these people, instead of talking to them about the things that everyone's asking them about, you're asking them about their personal lives. <laughs> totally. and, like, yeah. and, and they would find that refreshing. And they that was did. kind of a way to emotionally connect with the people that you were covering and engender their trust and you know maybe get something a little bit more interesting out of them. And I think that that's, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. But I also think that as, as a journalist, that's actually hugely important to do whatever it is you're covering. You know, now look, if you're, if you're, if you know, if you're, you know, covering a political race mm. or you're covering some community board meeting in some small town, you know, you write, you want right. to sort of stick to what you're there to sort of write about as a, you know, as a, as a journalist. But if you're, you know, having conversations about feature stories, um, 
you know, you want to make a connection with your the subject, the person that you're talking to, and and even identify with them if you if you can, and and um, you know, be empathetic, you know, whatever the case may be. So I would was kind of dropped into this world where you know these these people, these men and women, these fashion designers, these like you know icons, had been talking for for their lives and careers about hemlines and uh-huh. fabric selection and things yeah. like that, you know? And <laughs> I would come in and be like, so like, what, like, tell me about your childhood or what was, what did mm. you have for breakfast this morning? Or when was the last time you just went for a walk around town? I once, ha- it was with Carl Lagerfeld, um, uh, the designer for Chanel and, and I was talking to him. I was like, when was the last time you just walked around Paris? You know? And he's like, well, I, my dear boy, you know, I cannot walk around Paris, right. you know, and, and, and they, you're right. Cause he's, mm. it was like a walking caricature of himself, right. right? With the ponytail mm. and the fan and all of that. But, uh, but- Is the guy, does he literally always have the fan? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time with him. I did. Yeah. And I, I honestly don't know if I ever saw a fan. Mm. I, I may have seen one like resting on a table uh-huh. somewhere, but it was certainly not like some 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 prop, <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay. Uh, so I I was able to 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 kind of find a way in and develop relationships with these people and and uh, and and cover them in in ways that that were maybe a little bit um, different, right? You know. So you get the call for details, two thousand. Yeah, yeah. I get the call for details in two thousand, and and uh, you know, details had been around for many years. Details was a was a really amazing magazine. It uh-huh. was founded in the eighties by by you know brilliant woman named Annie Flanders, and and uh, it was um, very you know sort of downtown and yeah. plugged into into the club scene and, and, and a whole level of the culture that like just wasn't even on my radar. Uh, and uh, was ultimately purchased by, by Condé Nast, Cy Newhouse, who ran for many years Condé Nast magazines, which publishes Vogue and The New Yorker and Vanity Fair and all of that. Uh, and, uh, and then it had a, n- a couple, it had James Truman was a great mm-hmm. editor there mm-hmm. and it had become, they had really sort of built it up, but as they were building it up, like I said before, the whole landscape regarding men's magazines specifically was, was shifting into something that was, was kind of seeping into our culture from, from England, uh, which were these magazines that were rooted more toward like the sort of lad culture, right. you know, beer and babes. Uh, and Maxim so, was really the the kind of touchstone of all of that. Maxim, yeah. Maxim was the holy grail of that. And and then it, there were like a number of, of uh, competitors sort of started to crop up to try to sort of grab their share of that business because Maxim just like exploded onto the culture and uh, and in, in ways that men's magazines had never even really seen before. And so uh, at Condé Nast, they tried to turn details into a magazine like that. They mm. actually hired the former editor-in-chief of Maxim, a guy named Mark Golan, to come in and kind of Maximify details. And it just didn't work. And ultimately, it really didn't even fit in with the sort of broader kind of corporate Condé Nast identity of 
of luxury and sophistication and culture. You know, these are the people that, you know, did Condé Nast Traveler and The New Yorker. And then uh -huh. all of a sudden they were trying to do this, like, hey, how do we compete in this world right. of men's magazines? And that didn't work. So they shut it down and they were going to relaunch it. And they asked me if I wanted to be the editor in chief that, that, Right. That. So the idea being, rather than try to compete in that world, to counter-program against it and find a, a, a niche with a different audience. Right. I mean, yeah. let's find some white space here. Mm -hmm. You know, and anyone that that does any kind of branding, you know, like you don't you don't want to just jump into a, a crowded market and do the same thing that the market leaders right. are doing. Right. You can do that, and and we saw that with people trying to imitate Maxim. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's certainly smarter to to try to find a different path and and or to maybe reach an audience that that feels underserved by the kind of current constellation of magazines. Yeah. And so that's 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 what we ended up doing. So much of the job seems to be having your finger on the the pulse of like what's cool now. Like you have to really be dialed into lower Manhattan, right? And you, like what is ha actually happening that like the rest of America isn't aware of that's kind of percolating in those subcultures. Right, it, it, it was finding the trend before it was a trend. Uh -huh. it, was, it was being, you know, just early enough on an idea and then, you know, sharing that with your audience. Uh -huh. You know, you could be too early and and it would go nowhere. And then if you were late, everyone had already sort of seen the idea. So it was just kind of trying to 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 get it at the exact moment when mm -hmm. it was just before it became a thing. Mm -hmm. And and hoping actually that your story on it is what helped make it a thing. Yeah. You know. So then your job is to find the people because I mean, you're if you're like listening to Rick Springfield and Hootie and the Blowfish, oh, man. man, you're is, you're like you're, you, you don't seem like the right guy. But <laughs> but I would take I would imagine your talent is like knowing who those people are and recruiting them to be part of this team. I think taste in music aside, uh -huh. and I'm I'm just using that as an no, no, example. No, of, but that's a, that's a, yeah. that's a good example. Um, <laughs> poor Rick Springfield, <laughs> man. Uh, Jesse's girl, listen. You're nothing, in your look, car. Nothing but love. It, when, if Jesse's right? girl comes on, tell me you don't just take a moment. It's particularly all good. if you're alone. You know, turn that up a tiny little bit. All right, I'll give you that. All right, that's but all I think I even Rick Springfield would say, "Yeah, it's probably not cool." <laughs> he probably <laughs> you know, would. Yeah. Um, but a uh, lot, lot of love for you, Rick. Um, yes, I, I, I think I was able to to put together a team of people that could find those things of like cool hunters and people that 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 understood the culture mm. and 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 could could see what was coming and were tapped in in really important ways in lots of different categories so you know food you know bar culture right. music certainly um, entertainment uh, travel, also fashion, obviously, all sorts of things, and then they would come to me and say, "Hey, this is this is what's kind of percolating out there." Uh -huh. And I think 
My strength was the ability to say, okay, this is a story, this isn't a story. Yeah. Or, hey, how do we find a way into this story? You know, right. what, what is this, what, what, what makes sense here for our reader based upon what you're telling me? Uh -huh. So you're right. Like, I was never the guy that was the cool hunter. I was never cool, period. And so, but I, I had the ability to say, hey, that's cool. Uh -huh. And so that that's what that's what made me uh, able to do my job. Um, but no, if you dropped me in Lower Manhattan, listen, I know people. We've all grown up with people that you put them anywhere. We still, I still know people today. I'm 48. That like you kind of put them anywhere, and, and really, they find it. They find it, right and away. all of a sudden they know the great, the coolest people. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just got invited to this one. I yeah. buy this one. I was never that guy, but I was able to find those people and and in turn find some pretty interesting stories. Uh -huh. But you would still have to, I mean, I remember reading details when Truman was the editor and there's always, I mean, this is a thing with these kind of magazines. There's, you know, you see Graydon Carter doing this, you know, when he was editing Vanity Fair, but like that, the beautiful photo of the editor and then the letter right. you know, at the beginning, right? <laughs> right? And and the editor always looks super cool in some, right. you know, get up or whatever. And then you have to write this thing about what's going to be in the issue right. and kind of synopsize like what's happening right now. Would that was that challenging for you? Like I would imagine you did that, right? I did. I, uh, they dress you up and no, make you look. Um, I wrote the letter, but uh -huh. there was never a photo. There was, oh, there was never a photo. There of was you. never a photo of me mm. on that page. I was, I, I, you know, here we go back to like the sort of insecurity theme. <laughs> yeah. I, I never liked being uh -huh. photographed. Um, this isn't being recorded, is it? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was never comfortable in front of a camera and I hated, hated being at an event and having someone say, hey, let's get your picture. And that's your job. I mean, you talk about this in the book, just being you going to all of these crazy events that most people, you know, a lot of people would kill to be able to attend and you're a wallflower and they're, you got publicists yanking on you, take a picture with this person and that person and you just not wanting to do it. Right, and, and I think like I will, I'll try to sort of like draw out the distinction between being a wallflower and not wanting to have my photo taken. I could could maneuver around the room. I was, I, uh -huh. I really have always enjoyed talking to people. Um, and so, and I could do that with relative ease. It was the, and I, I write about this in the book, you're right, where like I would be at some event that I was hosting for like some Hollywood celebrity and they would be like, oh, hey, Dan, let's get a picture of you mm -hmm. and so-and-so. And it would literally be the superhero from the superhero movie. Uh -huh. And I would have to stand there with him. And I, as I write in the book, I always felt like the before photo in like some plastic surgeon's office, <laughs> oh, you know, next to uh -huh. this like chiseled guy with like this chiclet smile and like abs that you could th see through a suit. And like, I was kind of like, just never really feeling it. So the beauty of being the editor in chief of the magazine was that when it came to that letter from the editor that had to go in every issue, I could just say, hey, we're not gonna put a photo of me on this page. And that just became the norm. Uh -huh, Cause you were the boss. Cause I was the boss. Right. All right, well, let's get to the drugs. Yeah. It all, it all starts with a cartwheel. It does. Yeah. Oh, man. I, you know, I, um, you know, have done lots of stupid things in my life, and, and, and I, I detail many of them, actually, in, in, in my book. 
uh, but perhaps the stupidest, and and maybe the 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 one, if not even maybe, I think the one thing that actually I think forever changed the course of my life was the cartwheel. You know, and um, I think men have done so many dumb fucking things over the years to impress women. I mean, countless. In my case, it was a cartwheel, and and so here I was. I was in my early twenties. I was uh, was working still at at Women's Wear Daily, covering these parties and and things like that, movie premieres and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And was meeting up with a couple of friends, and um, we were in the lobby of a of an office building in, in Lower Manhattan. And uh, this friend came off the elevator. One of the the guy that that I, that me and another friend were there to meet, and was with like three or four young women. And uh, was introducing us and said, hey, so-and-so just got a job promotion. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. But can she do this? And I attempted a cartwheel, which it's important to note, I had never done before. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and, and it looked as if I had never done one before because I came crashing down on the floor and, and hurt my back. So, but this was like me, like seeking attention. This was yeah. me, like, this is my, this is like a theme throughout my, my entire life really was like, where am I, where am I getting validation from here? You know, and, and how am I getting eyes on me? And, um, in this instance, it was going to be a cartwheel and I did it and I hurt my back and I went to see a doctor probably a day or two later and was prescribed Vicodin. And, um, you know, that's how the seed was planted for mm-hmm. me, you know, and, and took this Vicodin, ultimately had back surgery, two back surgeries actually on my, on my lower uh, back and, and uh, was essentially off to the races, you know, with opiates. Was it that thing where the first time you took it, you just knew? You know, um, it was probably, it wasn't until the third or fourth time, which was still within a matter of a couple of days mm-hmm. of taking it. Well, initially, if the pain is severe enough, right, it, it mutes any kind of high that you're gonna experience. Exactly, and so yeah. I think when I first took it, it, it did exactly what it was prescribed to do, uh, which was um, mellow out the whatever pain I was feeling, but it, it was only really a day or two later that I, I realized, oh, wow, this is, this is, you know, how I want to feel, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, you just you saw me, like, I just took this a deep breath. answer it, to every it, question I ever had, you right? know? Or well, it's the solution like, to every problem I didn't totally. know that I had. Oh, it's like, oh, yeah. this is what I've been looking right. for. This is, this is going to make me feel like me. This is what I need. Like, I'm home. And, and it, it was the beginning of at least what I thought was like a really important love affair from being honest, you know? Um, And it happened incredibly quickly. Well, the thing that gets a couple observations, I mean, the first of all, the thing that gets missed in stories like this often is the love affair aspect of it. Like it does work for a period of time and it's serving some need, right? And it's fascinating how people find their way. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people like find their way to the the drug that does something that feels like it's you know it's that missing puzzle piece in their life. And that and it, and it was for me. And so you know, I I had grown up in Baltimore. I was the younger brother 
of like one of the town stars, you know, like a golden boy in town, my brother, Jeff, whom I love dearly. Uh, and he was the captain of the lacrosse team, mm -hmm. which in that kind of like lacrosse obsessed environment was like icon right. status, right? Uh, he was, um, he went to Cornell. He was like, you know, on his way to, to the Ivy League. Um, he was great looking and had tons of, of girlfriends. And I was the sort of the little brother who like did magic tricks in the uh -huh. basement and, and wasn't any of those things. And so, um, and this takes me to the, the cartwheel even, you know, like, it's just like, I was like seeking something, you know, and I just had never found it. And, and so with the cartwheel, it was seeking validation or appreciation or trying to get a laugh or trying to get a girlfriend. I mean, who the hell does a cartwheel to get a mm. girlfriend, but, or a date even, not even a mm. girlfriend, but that's sort of where I was. Um, so by the, by the time I, I took these Vicodin, um, I, I was, I was like, I was a seeker, you know, mm. and I was searching for something and it was that missing piece for, for me. And it was amazing. I, I don't want to, to, to glamorize, you know, uh, any kind of drug use, if I'm being honest, you know, but, but in that moment, it, it was, um, like being enveloped by, it was just be, like being like embraced in a way that I had never mm -hmm. been embraced. The warm blanket. It's the warm yeah. blanket, as I describe, exactly. Mm -hmm. It was like being just wrapped in a warm blanket and and it was like, oh, this is, this is how I should feel. Mm -hmm. And not, um, prior to that, like no real, you know, indicia that, you have this inner addict inside of you, like no, no, you know, issues with alcohol or no, anything like that, no. which is like really interesting. No, none whatsoever. Yeah. You know, I mean, listen, I partook. I, you know, uh -huh. I mean, I went to college and I drank and, like I said, I smoked pot and and I had, had uh, uh, like a, but I had a, like a healthy, you right. know, relationship with that stuff, you know. Um, and nothing in, in uh, nothing that would have indicated in any way that uh, I should probably steer clear of any of this stuff uh -huh. uh, until the Vicodin came into my life. I was listening to your conversation with Dr. Drew the other day, and he was he was like befuddled and confused by this until you <laughs> until you mentioned that you were Jewish, <laughs> totally. and it was like this light bulb goes off in him. Like he's searching for like he's trying to he's trying to do the math in his head about how this works. And that then, was a really interesting yeah, part. Yeah, a really yeah. interesting part of that conversation yeah. was, was yeah, when he was trying to get to the bottom of it, any childhood trauma, right. any- Dad and alcoholic. Yeah, no, I was like, like no, there was none no, of that, no, none right, of that. Yeah. And he's like, what, you know, you know, what's your ethnicity, you know, what, or what's your sort of like, where, like, what's your makeup? And I was like, oh, like, oh, you're an Ashkenazi Jew. He's like, absolutely, there it is. You know, and I was like, "What?" I nearly yeah, fell I'd off my I'd chair. I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard that either. And and um, I have a like a huge amount of respect for Dr. Drew. But I, I you know, I, in that moment, I was like, "What?" I mean, basically, you know? for people that are listening or watching, what he said was that there's something specific to Ashkenazi Jews that um, that have like this. What did he say exactly? Something about like later in life addiction with opioids specifically, or something about that that lineage of humanity that cottons onto that in a specific way. That's correct. And yeah. and and that's precisely what he said. And 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 now 
for all the Jewish moms that may be out there listening to this, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't uh-huh. <laughs> don't lock don't lock your children up quite yet, you mm. know. But that's this is this belief that 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 he has, and 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 um, I can't speak to it, but but uh, because surely he knows what he's talking about, but I just can't speak to it. But he, yeah, light bulb went off, and and so that that was that was it for me. I I um, and so let's say that's true, okay. You know, um, these these pills came into my life, and and boom, here I, here I am. Right. You know, and this quickly progresses. Uh, you know, you get up to like sixty pills a day, and it becomes your primary occupation, trying to source and fill these scripts and make sure that your stash never runs out. Yeah. And it's like reading this and listening to you talk about it. You know, I I I relate to that like obsession, um, but it also just reminds me how exhausting it is. It's like the amount of effort that went into making sure that you always had what you needed. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not a preoccupation. It is the predominant thing that lives and breathes inside you 24 hours a day. I had never worked harder at anything in my life before that point. I had, I had never been as committed to anything in my life before that point. Maintaining a supply of these pills was really my only focus. And uh, I had a big job at details at this point and and family and friends and, and, you know, trying to like manage relationships and things like that. But this was really uh, the only thing that I paid any true, true attention to, uh-huh. you know, which is, Fascinating in and of itself, right? Because here I was, I was running this magazine, and and and, uh, but this was really all I cared about. And so, when you get up to as I did, sixty Vicodin a day, I, I ultimately switched over to another mm-hmm. drug that that uh, where the numbers came down. The it's called Roxycodone. Yeah, Roxycodone. It's like twice the dosage. It was twice the dosage, but without the Tylenol. Uh-huh. So like with, I was taking extra strength Vicodin. I was essentially taking, so I was taking, let's say 60 a day. I would take, to just to break it down, I would take, and and, and by the way, not immediately. I, I worked my way no, up to course. these numbers, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, yeah. I didn't just dive in, you know, be like, you know what, 60 seems like a good number. I, I ultimately got to 15 at a time and mm. I was doing it about four times a day. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, the 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 active ingredients of an extra strength Vicodin are hydrocodone, which is the the, the you know the codeine based sort of you know analgesic painkiller, the opiate por- the, part of the it, the opiate portion yeah. of it, and acetaminophen, uh, or you know which is which is Tylenol, right? And so I was taking in addition to all of the opiates, I was essentially taking a small bottle of t- extra strength Tylenol a day. Right. For years. Right. And we all know the dangers of acetaminophen, but that was another thing that Dr. Drew talked about, that he still doesn't see liver toxicity in people that are taking Vicodin at at that dosage level because the liver figures out a way to process all of this and keep you from dying. Correct. And and it's amazing. And when I got sober and, and went to my doctor, he was like, we need to take a look at your liver. Right. You know, like first and foremost, which which was fine, mm. you know. Um, 
uh, yeah, the body has a way of, and, and you know, a way of sort of like making it work for addicts. And, and, and the addiction is super crazy powerful. I, I'm of the, of the belief that like, it, it, it's p- quite possible that the, the addiction also just sort of finds a way to like, yeah. like keep letting, allowing you to feed it, mm-hmm. you know, and that may sound bizarre, but that's sort of like my view of it. Um, but but when you need that many pills, it's really hard to get them. And so, so it, it does take a lot right. of energy. And I put a ton of energy into it <laughs> and, and was quite artful about it, uh-huh. you know, I, I, I think. You know, like I, you know, addicts are brilliant liars. Unbelievable. Yeah, like we- That was one thing Jeff said, said, said ask, uh, ask, ask Dan if he thinks he's the best liar in the world. Right. We- <laughs> <laughs> we are masterful yeah. liars uh-huh. and 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 then certainly like a, like a, you know like the really close like first cousin of that is great con artists uh-huh. you know and so i would go into these doctors offices and i was doctor shopping i was seeing probably four or five different doctors at a time and and filling different prescriptions in different parts of town uh and i would put on quite a performance for them um on on each visit and yeah. um, and and over time, the the performances became more and more elaborate because suspicions, yeah, you know, <laughs> elaborate or slash comedic and transparent. <laughs> totally, I would imagine. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I suspect it was a different. I I, I would imagine it's harder now because I, I think of it is. everything that's happening and the crisis that you know our culture is weathering at the moment. But at the time, and this was another interesting thing that came up with you and Dr. Drew, uh, this was the heyday of the pain management clinics and this idea that, you know, opioids were, you know, the solution and this white hat, you know, mentality and the litigious nature of our, our healthcare system such that, you know, no doctor wants to get sued for ignoring, denying, yeah, like right. saying, well, he was bullshitting me and then right. finding out he was wrong. So there was just a an epidemic of oversubscription. There was. And and this is where I think, like, the the conversation with Dr. Drew got- Well, let's get into it, because I have thoughts on this too. Got, and I, I have a sense of what you wanted to say and didn't say. I, and it got interesting, and it took yeah. an unexpected turn mm. When Drew said to me, he, he was he became an apologist for the pharmaceutical industry in a certain way, and, and maybe in a certain way he did. He he was very dismissive of of the the complicity. Like yes, what what he said, and I was uh, not stunned, but I was taken aback. Um, uh, and I don't want to misrepresent what he uh, said. And, and let me just say for the record too, like I, <laughs> I have, I've got crazy respect for Dr. Yeah. Trump. He's nothing, a, nothing but same, love for him. Same. Too. But he, he put it all on the medical community, the doctors that were writing the prescriptions and, and, uh, he was like, no, 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 no. It's all the doctors. It's all the doctors. And again, I, I don't want to misrepresent him. I, surely, you know, um, I think anyone knows that the pharmaceutical companies here were, were complicit also. But but I was about to go down this road with him where I was going to say something to the effect of, um, listen, these pharmaceutical companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars um, in marketing to to do a number of different things, and I'm going to circle back to the mm-hmm. to the point where you just were, but but to do a number of different things. One of those th- those things, I think, quite simply, was to falsely minimize the risk of addiction with respect to to, to opiates. Right. Right. And that's one thing Drew agreed with. Right. These people don't understand addiction. Right. 
you know, but they have also spent hundreds of millions of dollars helping convince doctors that, this is in my opinion, helping convince doctors that they were ignoring patients' pain mm -hmm. and that uh, there were broader uses for drugs like this and that pain is to be taken seriously. And this was the sort of like evil genius of, of these companies, you know, um, uh, companies like Purdue and, uh, and others that um, were, were, you know, teaching, quote unquote, teaching or educating doctors that you're ignoring patients' pain, that pain mm -hmm. is real and that you have to trust and believe patients when they come to you. And for a drug addict like me and for a world-class liar like me, I was able to manipulate the shit out of that mm -hmm. because I could go in in a suit and tie and I could go in limping and dry. Like my performance was fairly ornate. Right, you're talking I, about like uh, you you would get out of the cab and limp into the doctor's office and limp out just in case a right. nurse happened to see you or whatever, right. or like I would, maintain the ruse. I would limp <laughs> down the street. I would start my uh -huh. my performance uh -huh. a block or two away from the doctor's office in the event that someone that worked in that office may have been out running out to grab a coffee or running an errand uh -huh. or something like that. I it would, you know, I, I couldn't have them see me not in character. So it would start the second I climbed out of the subway or out of a taxi. And I would I would limp down the street, but I wouldn't just limp down the street. I would I would stop and like and like wince. I would lean against like a um you know, a, a, a fire hydrant or whatever it was, you know, and catch my breath. Like I really committed to this performance. Um but uh but but to go back to Dr. Drew, he he said, you know, yeah, no, it's all these doctors, all the doctors, all the doctors, all the doctors. I actually pain management, the doctor, pain management yeah. doctors, right? That and 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 listen, it's, it's surely he knows far more about this than I do. I know based on my experiences what happened to me, and and I actually believe that these doctors were genuinely interested and genuinely, uh, you know, and deeply in some instances concerned about the symptoms that I was presenting. Mm -hmm. And and I can't fault them for not being for not calling bullshit on me. You know, like the performances were were pretty Oscar worthy for a time. You know, they really were. And so uh -huh. Um, but yeah, so we, so here I am sitting talking to, to, to Drew and we just sort of, we had this conversation and I just was surprised that, um, that it went that way. Well, certainly there is, uh, you know, an awareness level in the C-suite of these pharmaceutical companies that, you know, look, they know they're selling an insane amount of these pills. These medications are going out. Like the level of, you know, pain versus the prescription level, you know, to anybody who would kind of, you know, evaluate that spreadsheet would look out of whack, right? Like clearly people are abusing these drugs. Well, not only that, but but they they quite successfully um, managed to, to convince doctors that, uh, if, you know, a kid, you know, some college baseball player breaks his arm, oh, this is good for that too. Like mm -hmm. initially these drugs were, were, were most frequently prescribed for, you know, end of life care, 
uh, cancer patients in just like excruciating, agonizing pain, uh-huh. uh, victims of, of, of accidents and things like that. Um, and they, these, the people in these C-suites at these pharmaceutical companies, I think seized on an opportunity to, uh, to say, okay, hey, listen, there's like, we're under, like, there's, there's, there's more market here for us, uh-huh. you know, because there are lots of people that are having teeth pulled and breaking bones and, and injuring themselves by doing cartwheels and, and right. things like that, that, that we are, that we should be tapping into. Mm-hmm. What's, what's, uh, interesting about your case is that you would think that somebody of your kind of privilege and, and stature, you hear these stories, I don't know whether they're apocryphal or not, of you know people who are, you know, have that kind of level of access, have their, you know, their 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 special doctor who's, you know, ethically compromised, who's just more than willing to, you know, write all kinds of crazy scripts for, you know, cash under the table. But you're playing this shell game with, you know, these doctors that are, you know, not those people, right? Like you're just trying to get these scripts written. I am. I am, I am as much as possible. Because that was that was the at least initially, yeah. that's that's what I was doing. Um, but but I I was always I always felt like a pretender. I was always pretending. And the magic, the idea of like creating an illusion, the idea of deception is is something that I can now, all these years later, look back and say, oh, like my love and interest in magic and card tricks and coin tricks and mm. all those magic books that I poured over and all those, you know, videotapes that I bought and like basically wore out the VCR playing and watching, learning and, and studying magic, really- This is your ultimate opportunity this to was, deploy all of that. This was the yeah, grand illusion. charade. You know, it really yeah. was. And, wow. and, 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 I, and I owned it. You know, uh-huh. and and um, and and worked to perfect it. You know, I would go into these pain management um, specialists' offices, and I would would walk into the waiting room, and I would see the pain patients, the real pain patients, sitting there. People like with just you know, no color in their faces, people that, that you know, took all the energy that they probably could muster just to like get from home to the doctor's office to, you know, and I would, I would look at their expressions or the way they walked or the way that they would like lower themselves into the chair in the waiting room. And, and I would sponge off of that. I would, would make my shtick better Uh um, from, from watching these people. You right, know? like a method acting totally. approach. Totally. My favorite of all your ruses is it was when you would create these elaborate overseas itineraries. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm going to be in Australia for 30 days, and you would reserve airline tickets and print out. You'd have your your assistant print out I would, itineraries. I would. I would bring these in. I would. I would show up at the pharmacist with uh-huh. my passport in hand. Uh, yeah. So I would. Uh-huh. You know what? I was running out. I was running out of pills and I was running out of doctors to get pills when you need, from. When you're taking 60 a day, you're you're always running out. You're right, right. you're right. And so it, it was it was a constant search for pills. It's all I all I cared about. And so I would ha- I would start going back to doctors that had prescribed me, you know, 300 pills 
two two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I would go back to them after two weeks when they wrote me a prescription for a month, and I would start having to get creative in that respect mm-hmm. also. You can't go into these doctors and say, I lost my pills. Yeah. That's just like that they weren't gonna swallow, but I would go in and I would use my job at Details Magazine to sort of help you know, legitimize this. And I would say, hey, like, oh, it's the worst possible timing, but I'm going off on like a world tour to like, and I would make up just ridiculous shit. Oh, I'm going to a textile mill in Italy to mm. see how, you know, right. cashmere is made. And then right from there, I'm going to this like, leather moccasin factory to see how they're hand sewn. And then I'm going over to Australia to do this. And, and here I've brought the itinerary, you know, and I would have in anticipation of this meeting, my assistant at the magazine, make up a travel itinerary. And I would just say, Hey, can you put together a travel itinerary? Start me in Milan, then take me to like Sicily, and then from Sicily to Rome, and then from Rome to Sydney. <laughs> and and my assistant awesome. would look at me like, "What on earth?" I'm like, "Oh, I, you know, I just I'm just curious, you know, I'm yeah. you know, I I'm, I doubt I'm going to do this trip, but just go ahead and and call the travel agent and put together the itinerary and let's price it out." And then she would print out an itinerary for me and I'd be like, "Oh, okay, yeah, let's not go ahead and book it, but I would have this mm. this sheet in my hand and I would go see the doctors one after the next and it would be like the same thing, like Listen, my back's been killing me, so it's the worst possible timing, but I just need to do this. Maybe I should even probably just quit my job because, you know, it's 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 sort of untenable. And and uh, and I, I'm thinking about and I would just go into this like I would go off on this like improv routine <laughs> yeah. and and like limping and clutching and wincing and 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 groaning in pain when, where I felt no pain, by the way, mm-hmm. you know. And, and there's no physical outward indicia that you're loaded. Like, you're, are your pupils pinned? Are you clammy? Like, no, clammy? no, because, um, or at least not that I was was aware of, and uh-huh. nothing. There, there were no obvious tells, yeah. um, and and I wouldn't go into these doctors' offices loaded up and high. You know, I, I was able to sort of be. I would try to be anyway smart about the timing of what I refer to in the book as my Mm. feedings. Mm -hmm. Taking pills were my feedings and I was feeding this beast of this addiction. And so I would time my feedings around, you know, what I deemed to be important meetings, not just meetings with doctors, but meetings with my boss or even a phone call with my mom or whatever the case was, you know, because more and more people were starting to look at me a little strangely and starting Mm -hmm. to ask, Hey, like what's wrong with you? You know, like that was like a refrain for me from these years. Like, Hey, what's wrong with you? Or like, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like those two things, hearing the word normal, like is still like a trigger for me, you know, Uh, because I wasn't normal, you know? Um, And, uh, but yeah, I would go, I would go to great lengths to convince these doctors that, that, that I was like legitimately in need of, of, a, of a new prescription. And just keeping track of when you talked to that doctor the last time and you know how much time it elapsed, like keeping all your stories that straight. That was actually like, quite like, simple, but like, <laughs> yeah. thanks, like thanks to- pill- Like a spreadsheet or no, something? No, like, the pill bottles had I labels with the, dates the on dates. them. And mm-hmm. I could say, oh, okay, I got this filled 
that, which means I saw the doctor that same day because yeah. I, I didn't sit on prescriptions. Uh-huh. You know, I would get them filled immediately, and I could, and I would start to, you know, I would use those as like my roadmap, basically. Uh huh. Until the, the then you have this um, the pink the the pink uh, you know bathrobe thing yeah. situation. I like there would I would the 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 visits to the doctor's office just weren't enough. They really yeah. weren't. When this when this um and le- and let me say also that like uh, I, I can sort of talk about this now with some measure of excitement or even like humor, you know. But um, this is this is a dark and awful place to be. I mean, it really is. And and um and and anyone that that has struggled with or is is actively mm-hmm. um uh, you know uh, dealing with this addiction or has someone in their life that is actively dealing with this addiction and let's be honest like and a lot of people that's a lot of people right this touches a lot of people mm-hmm. you don't have to go too far you know uh in your kind of world in your own orbit to find someone that is dealing with this in some way um but uh but um but and then you know, as I wrote this book, I had a little bit of distance from it. I was able to look back on some of these experiences uh-huh. and 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 find also some 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 moments of levity there. Yeah. Uh, the moment of the of this pink gown was a really interesting time because I I would run out of doctors that I could call because you start to know who's going to give them up and who's not, mm-hmm. you know? And- um, Yeah, I got, who, I got one more with this guy. Totally, 100%. he's going to be done with me. Totally. Yeah. Like I can probably, mm-hmm. right, I'm going to try this guy, but they're probably not going to give me an appointment, or right? Or they'll, they'll mm-hmm. take care of me one more time and then I'm like dead to them, you know? And, you know, because they would say, okay, I'll give you these pills, but, you know, I really think you need to start a physical therapy or I want to mm-hmm. start doing certain like nerve block injections. Like I didn't want any of that shit. I just wanted the pills. So I needed to start to find different ways to get them. And sometimes when I was really bad, because let's let's just take a second and talk about what happens when you stop taking the pills. Yeah. So when you run brutal. out, it is absolutely brutal is the perfect word. It's just, it's brutal. You know, it's hell on earth. And and the the acute physical symptoms of opiate withdrawal are such that you, your body, you know, cause your body needs them. Your body is craving them. Um, your brain it has, has, has uh, gotten accustomed to having this chemical uh, there and, 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 um, and your body just absolutely starts to demand them mm-hmm. when you run out of them. And so, uh, and it lets you know that it's not happy. And, Loud you know, and clear. Like, yeah, like in an unmistakable way. And so you start to feel, <sighs> run down, you start to have hot flashes, you start sweating, and then all of a sudden you're freezing. Um, you can get headaches, there's nausea and diarrhea. And all, Your brain yeah. doesn't work either. You can't basically you can't focus. You know, create a cohesive thought. You can't. And it's just absolutely miserable. And any depiction of opiate withdrawal, which includes heroin that you've seen in, in a movie is, is, is very accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, you're, you're, you're shivering, you're shaking, you're miserable, your whole body aches, you can't think, you can't focus. And, and it doesn't just come and go, it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. And so I would run out of pills all the time and I would go through withdrawal 
all the time. And I would go to the emergency room that, uh, that was near where I lived in New York city at the time, St. Vincent's it's no longer there. Mm -hmm. It's now like ridiculously priced condos, but I would go to the emergency room and, and I would walk in and, and, uh, so the like first time I went, I had been at an event that evening, a gala where I was wearing a tuxedo and, and the symptoms of withdrawal were kicking in while I was at this gala. And I eventually left and went home, peeled off my tuxedo and just basically got into bed and, and like waited for this to happen, which mm -hmm. was just awful. The, the, the anxiety, the, the fear of it coming was, was equally as powerful as the actual withdrawals, right. you know, the symptoms itself, you know, just this sort of buildup of anxiety and terror, you know, right. I mean, I describe it in the book as, as like a scene from a horror movie where like you're hiding and like this sort of killer is like, you know, the killer's in the room, right. And you're under the bed or you're in the closet and you see feet walk by or like a a shadow or silhouette of something and you just know it's about to to come and it does you know and like the you get yanked out from underneath mm. the bed or the closet door flies open and like you're toast and that's what that's what i felt this like deep panic of like oh my god it's coming it's coming it's going to be unrelenting um it is it's just awful so um this night of this gala, I was like, you know, screw this. I'm going to go to the emergency room. And I actually, at like two or three in the morning, put the tuxedo back on uh -huh. and went into an emergency room <laughs> because yeah. I, I, I felt uh -huh. that I wouldn't, I wouldn't present as just like a junkie, yeah. you know, looking like truly like itching, mm -hmm. like quite literally for a fix if I had this tuxedo right. on. You know, and that like somehow, you know, uh, this would make my experience there uh, easier. I walk into the emergency room and the triage nurse is just sort of like, they've seen it all, mm -hmm. you know, like a New York City emergency room at like three in the morning. Um, and, but I, I managed to kind of get in and I, I was in this sort of part of the emergency room and they had given me this blue gown this blue paper gown to put on and I put my tuxedo in a, in a bag that they had given me to hold my stuff. And I'm sitting across from this woman at pretty much the same distance that I am from you now. So just a few feet. And, um, and she was in a pink paper gown to my blue paper gown. And we were in an incredibly well lit room and, uh, she was, um, there was a stack, she was next to the counter that had a sink and a stack of, uh, individually wrapped alcohol wipes and probably some cotton balls and tongue depressors uh -huh. and like that knee hammer. And she was staring at me and she was naked under her gown. And I know this because she was sort of exposing herself to me and she was taking uh, one at a time, these alcohol wipes, she would tear them open, take one out, wipe it all over her face, drop it to the floor, take another one while keeping eye contact with me. Uh -huh. It was fascinating. And, uh, I eventually get led out of that room and in to see a doctor. And part of my whole shtick when I was talking to doctors was to appear as normal as possible. And part of my whole shtick in life, as we talked about with me getting dropped into the world of journalism, of fashion journalism, was, was engaging with people immediately, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so I would 
engage this doctor. I did in this instance in the emergency room, I'm talking to this doctor. It's the middle of the night. He's got to be exhausted. And I'm like, wow, it's a, you know, it's right. like the Star Wars cantina out there in the waiting room. It's you like, and I, we're fine. Yeah, we're like, no, like, <laughs> like, thankfully, I can connect yeah. with like a normal yeah. person because, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's, it's pretty weird out there, man. And, uh, and I'm, so I'm talking to him and I start telling him about this, this, uh, this woman that I was sitting across from who was exposing herself to me and, and wiping these, these alcohol, you know, swabs all over her face. And he said to me really without even kind of looking up, you know, like what color gown was she wearing? Was it pink? And I was like, like, how do you know that? And he's like, well, we give the people that we have psychiatric concerns about pink gowns so that. Everyone knows that when they see someone in a pink gown, keep your eye on them mm -hmm. and make sure that they aren't a risk to themselves or other patients or don't like just sort of behave in a way that would generally be, right. be, be, you know, described as crazy. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I get a prescription from this guy. Um, I go about my business. Not four or five months later, I'm back in the emergency room. I'm not wearing a tuxedo this time. And, and the, the, the symptoms of withdrawal are, are, are particularly powerful. And I had taken some other things to try to help tamp them down, Valium and things like that. And it was the middle of the night and I was... Um, found my way to the, to the hospital. I just was desperate. I just couldn't go through withdrawal, you know, yet again. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, I go up to the window, the triage nurse, and I explain, you know, tried to sort of stay true to my script, you know, but must have delivered an, an, a subpar performance, you know, um, because she was like, it's going to be a few minutes. And, and I eventually get led into to a room and, and there's like an intake nurse taking my blood pressure and things like that. And I starting to, I'm sweating and I think my voice was probably quivering, but I'm still trying to stick true to stay to my sort of spiel. And I'm like, how long will this be? Cause I, you know, have early meetings tomorrow. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I'm the I'm the editor in chief of Details Magazine. That's a major national yeah. magazine, by the way. And I I have lots of important things in, in front of me, and uh -huh. and this is just like a burden for me. And um, she's like, you're going to be here definitely for a little while, you know. So why don't you go ahead and change out of your clothes and put this on? And she handed me a pink paper gown. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Did you bust a move out of there? I sure did. Yeah. I got right you're, out of there. You're, yeah, you're one step away from getting yeah. locked up at that yeah. point. I got right out of there. You know, um, I my story has lots of moments like that though. Yeah. There were there were there were It is funny, but it is, you know, it's it's sad and it's pathetic and it's, you know, it it, it just speaks to the places that something like this will take you to. It does. It take it speaks to the depth depths that mm. this will take you and um and for me uh you know i've been asked as i'm as i'm sort of now out and about talking about my book you know like hey man like what was your what's your bottom mm -hmm. you know and that's that's a question that that people in recovery will ask other people in recovery and that's a question that people want to know like man what was your breaking point like what what got you to sobriety and it is most often a bottom of some kind. You know, I lost my job. I had a horrible car accident, nearly killed someone, did kill someone, like awful, horrible things that, that happen when people, uh, you know, abuse alcohol and, and drugs. I didn't have one bottom. I, I feel like I just had 
like a series of progressively demoralizing situations. Correct. Stacked up. That just yeah. stacked that mm-hmm. stacked up, you know. Yeah. And 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 um and this was just this was just one of them, you uh-huh. know. But but I think my my point is that I would wake up the next day after having like what should have been a moment of clarity, like, hey man, wow, like this this is getting really bad, you know, and and people are 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 starting to be on to you here and or you know, like you're gonna die, you know. And I would say that to myself all the time. Like I would, I would, I got to a point where I was at nighttime were like my biggest highs. I would take the most mm-hmm. pills at night because I would could the big, the big feeding. The big feeding, exactly. Yeah. I could I could really just kind of zonk myself out, you know. And I would take, you know, 15 pills, let's say, and then be like, you know what, I'm gonna add like a couple more on top of that just to like really numb myself out. But this might kill me. But I I would take them anyway. And and it's not that I wanted to die because I don't think I wanted to die. I was prepared to die though for that high. Right. It was just something I was prepared to do. Mm. And and um but I would wake up the next morning from these moments and I would start all over again. You know, I wasn't and this is the thing, you know, and there are probably a lot of people in recovery that will will be like, you know, yeah, like you're not you're not ready until you're ready yeah you know and and it's hard to to and even when you think you're ready you're probably you may still not be ready i mean you have this story about you you go through the full detox at your mom's right and then basically <laughs> shortly thereafter cop right away i do i and, do and not 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 planning to but that's just that's the way it works Right. Yes, that for for me that was right, and and it's yeah. a really powerful addiction, right? So I went down to my mom's house in Baltimore, and and what what did it for me? Ultimately, I I was ready. I just couldn't stop. Mm. I absolutely couldn't stop. You know, I knew I needed to stop. I acknowledged that I was a drug addict. Um, I knew that I was going to probably die if I didn't stop. I had been ODing, so I would had stopped breathing a number of number of times in the middle of the night. Um, there's a I write about in the book of a girlfriend like waking up literally with someone on like a girlfriend on top of me, like basically banging on my chest, like freaking right. out because I wasn't breathing. Later, when I was married, my wife would say, you know, in the morning, like. Wow, you were like gasping for air in the middle of the night, you know, almost like you're holding your breath. Like, you know, what's what's going on, mm-hmm. you know? And I'd be like, I don't know, maybe it's sleep apnea or or, or something like that. It's you know? crazy how long you got away with it in your marriage. It, it's extraordinary how long I got away with it in my marriage, and um, uh, and it's also, you know, if we're being really honest, you know, it's extraordinary what I put her through. Yeah. And and um, and I because think- you're never really present, and there's no true intimacy as long as you know that exists between you. That's correct. There's like a wall in between us, and there was just there was something that was more important. There was something I loved more, mm-hmm. you know, and that was that was these drugs. And 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 it's hard for me to say this now. Like I I feel it. Like I feel like you know like emotions stirring up around this, you know. But that's just the truth. Yeah. Like I was. I wasn't present for anyone or anything in my life other than this addiction. It was the only thing that I cared mm. about and feeding it. And so um, the, the people that are around addicts, 
the people that are in the lives of addicts, certainly moms and dads and siblings, but also spouses and partners and colleagues, all of those things really um, are just victims of this addiction also. They suffer tremendously at the hands of this addiction also. Yeah, and and the addict is blind to that until it's Uh, way too late. Absolutely, the addict does not see it. Worse, the addict will try to turn it and gaslight mm-hmm. and we'll try to of course because you know, you've got to protect that above everything exactly. else exactly so i would i would try to make anyone that like would would start to question my behavior i would do everything in mm-hmm. my power to make it seem like to actually make it seem like like you owe me an apology for suggesting yeah. that like right. what's wrong with How you, dare or you why are you being paranoid or whatever it is you know and the great lie of course i mean the during the romance period there's this sense that you're hyper productive and you're able to like you know uh perform at a higher level and like this is what i need in order to do this crazy job that i have right um and it's only over time that you realize that that's all a lie that's all bullshit and right. there is a little bit of a narrative out there around your story in your book that you were this high functioning addict and i i guess you know i, I don't believe I, that I understand to be true. that but like <laughs> yeah it's not true i don't right? believe that like, to be true let, you know, so you let's become, clear that up you become this absentee Correct. editor you're like working from home or you're coming up with reasons not to come into the office shit's going haywire there's you know crises that are happening that are widely publicized about things that are happening at the magazine and this this you know sense that you become this very mercurial person right who's prone to these outbursts and unpredictable and and the but it like. was more of a an air of mystery than anything right. else but i think i think that that's an amazing point i'm really glad you brought that up it's actually really sort of like astute uh, point to make like it, i wasn't high functioning and I, and I've been, and, and that is part of this sort of thing that's mm-hmm. out there now about this book that I was this high functioning addict. I, I wasn't, I was an addict hiding in plain sight. And there are a lot of addicts mm. hiding in plain sight. Yeah. It's like, what was that story in the New York Times about the Silicon Valley executive and the, the the wife who didn't know and she found him dead? Like, I think they were divorced, but then she found him dead in his place and all the vials everywhere. Exactly. And, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And I know her and, and yeah. um, Eileen, and she's... Um, She's written a terrific, terrific right. book and um, about her experience. Oh, is Smash? Is that uh, so bit? Um, uh, is that smacked. Smacked, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, or at least I'm pretty sure. And, uh-huh. um, uh, and uh, so, so um, look, I, I, I wasn't high functioning. It may, I may have appeared to, to be, and I, I, and I didn't try to portray it that way in the book. In fact, mm-hmm. I think I portray it quite honestly. But I think just people in a perfunctory way are like, oh, he, he was able to hold this job for right. seven years or whatever, right. you know, while, you know, while under the influence. So. And, and I was, and yeah. so that, you're right, that leads people to, to then say, you must've been a high functioning addict. I, I wasn't, I was an absentee editor. I was plugged in, uh, uh, you know, when I needed to be, and and was was th- there at the ideation stage of things um, because that was always my strength finding the story what's the way in here what's the best way for us to tell this story even high I was able to do that but I was not there in any meaningful way mm-hmm. and and had it not been for an extraordinary team of editors and writers and and everyone that's around uh, helping to sort of produce a magazine uh, it just it, it wouldn't have gotten published right the other narrative that's emerged from your book which I imagine, uh, is 
probably comes as a, somewhat of a surprise to you, is that now it's become this referendum on corporate responsibility <laughs> and you know what actually was going on at Condé Nast during this time. Um, yes, and I don't care for that narrative right. too much. Um, I'm not paying that much attention to it, um, but I know that it's there. And um, I think, listen, people are, are entitled to have whatever reaction they want to, to, the, to the book. I think what I'm learning is that there are certain media people that, that their reaction is, and then I wanna circle back to getting sober at my mom's mm -hmm. if, if we yeah, can. Yeah, of course. Um, but th there are people that are, are, are looking at it and being like, you know, where was the oversight and where was the management of this person, meaning me, and how could they not know, meaning the corporation? Um, and, and oh my God, editors were traveling like that and flying first class and all of that and shame on him for, you know, someone else could have been doing this job. And I, I didn't write the book for media people. No, I, you're writing, you're just telling your story. I'm telling That's my why, story. Obviously it's, this is, this is like a surprising byproduct. It is, and it's thing. an annoying one, but, but I, I'm, I'm working through it, but it's, uh -huh. it's, um, to me, uh, Details Magazine, Condé Nast, the publishing company that, that put Details Magazine out, media in general, are really just characters in my book to help contextualize my story mm. and, and, and my- Most addiction. of whom you anonymize anyway. Most of whom, yeah. exactly. I changed the names of just about, of, of, of as many people as I could possibly could, just to avoid dragging people yeah. into my mess, Yeah, it's, right? not, it's not intended to be an expose of no, anyone other than not. yourself. Absolutely <laughs> not. Think. And so, um, but there are people that are sort of like kind of taking it, yeah. taking me to task or the media uh -huh. or Condé Nast to task. And, and, and so be it. I mean, it is what it is. Um, just with respect to oversight though, like I think the, the magazine was doing well. Mm -hmm. This was the thing, you know, and, and maybe this- and it's doing well, they're leaving you alone. They were and leaving it was a, me alone. It was a time of crazy expense accounts and you're like, you know, and it's living in a hotel basically, right? And totally. taking town cars everywhere. And, yeah, I mean, you know, this was that world no at one's paying the time. And, right. and, um, and no one was paying attention if- It was going well. The, you were hitting yeah. your goals and, and, or exceeding them even. And, and we were doing really nicely and, and, uh, so so uh, no one was gonna sort of jump in and be like, hey, what's going on here? There was no reason to, you right. know? And and we had, a, I had a ton of autonomy and and um, and that's that, you know? And, and incidentally, it's sort of, I wouldn't blame or hold anyone accountable for lack of oversight uh -huh. anyway, you know? Right. Like I was making choices and, 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 and then obviously became a full-blown addict, you know? Um, when I when I ultimately got sober, I, I uh, so this all goes circles back to my 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 then wife um, who was pregnant, you know, at the time with our oldest son, and and she ultimately did discover uh, that I was doing uh, taking all of these pills, mm -hmm. and 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 I think did did an incredibly brave thing, which which um, I'm grateful for every day, which was like, hey, like. I love you, but you need to get out of this house and you need to deal with this, um, but you can't do it here. I'm six months pregnant. Mm -hmm. I, I can't have it around me. And, and, and I, I, I am really grateful for that and I respect that. And I think it was a really smart thing for her to do. Uh, and I went down to my mom's house and got sober, uh, spent two weeks down there and um, 
uh, you know. I'm home, mom. Uh, yeah, like here I am. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's nothing quite like being a, you know, uh, like a 35 year old mm. man uh, or, or person and and going back to your mom's house and basically just sort of like crumbling to pieces, right. you know, which is precisely what happened. Uh, and I got sober, I was down there for mm. two weeks. I attended my first 12 step meeting. I, you know, um, I called the doctors, someone in my life that I, in my my uh, childhood uh, that I grew up with, who was sober, said, "Hey, you need to tell on yourself. You need to call these doctors." And like I was like, "Yes," you know, right. like I was in it. I was like, "This is the new me." And cut off the source. And now I'm going to cut it off of the source, you know. And I started called, you know, uh, I was probably seeing three or four doctors at the time, and I called all of them except for one. So the stash. Even in that moment of feeling amazing about where I had, you know, where I was, how I was starting to feel, being like, oh wow, like I'm, I'm through the physical stuff, you know. Uh, I I held back and um, had to re-engage with my life in New York. I had a big job that I was away from for two weeks. I had a. Uh, a pregnant wife that I needed to figure out like a path forward with. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, after all the sort of crap that I had put her through and, um, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to New York. I had been enrolled in a, in an outpatient recovery facility in New York city to go to like, you know, me meetings, you know, probably every uh -huh. day or four times a week. Um, and on the way back, I'm on a train, I'll get on that Amtrak train and from, uh, from Baltimore to New York and I call and I get a prescription and it's waiting for me at a pharmacy and I get off the train, I go right to the pills mm -hmm. and, um, and I took them for, for a day. Cunning, baffling and powerful the most cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it isn't such a powerful disease addiction is that it, that even while I was in Baltimore, I, I made this split second decision while I was calling these doctors to, to eliminate, to eliminate, hold back. Hold one back. To hold have one that, back. Have that out. That's how door. that's how yeah. powerful it is. I'd gone through so much. I was out to everything. My wife had kicked me out. My pregnant wife had kicked me out. All of this stuff, it didn't matter. You know, I I like made the decision in in, mm -hmm. a, in a like a blink of an eye to do that. And I went back to New York and I I took pills for a day um, and then I I stopped. That was it. That was October twelfth, two thousand and seven. And your son was born shortly thereafter, he right? He was, yeah. he was born in January uh -huh. of 2008, just three short yeah. months from the time that I got sober. Yeah, that that idea of like, what's your bottom? I mean, the 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 demoralization of, of filling that script and taking those pills after that commitment that you made to yourself. I mean, they always say like, you know, if you want to, if you want to like really ruin your drinking and using, like get a head full of AA and then use, and right. you know, it's just like you just you you've never felt worse and and more ashamed of yourself when you do that. Yeah, and that's you know? the beauty of it. Yeah, right, because it it um, hopefully gets you to come back, and and in in this case for me anyway, it it did, um, but. 2007, sober ever since. Sober so ever since. 13, 12, 13 years. Uh, it's 20, October. Yeah. So in October of 20, it'll be 13 yeah. years. Uh -huh. So I celebrated it's amazing. 20. Yeah, Sorry. it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's It has has changed my, my, my life with the same 
um, degree, you know, same sort of force that that cartwheel did, you know, um, it, it, uh, because I, I live in gratitude now, you know, and I, I'm really grateful to be here because I shouldn't be. And, um, you know, this, this uh, opiate addiction kills 130 people a day. There are 130 opiate related overdose Mm -hmm. deaths every day. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a miracle and I know that. And, um, I try to try to be grateful for it every day. Um, I try to do a gratitude list actually every day. I am, I have this email chain that I'm on with about 10 other guys and we just hit reply all and list the things that I'm grateful for, you know, and I'm super grateful for, for super, so, so many basic things that, that I used to take for granted, or I used to see normal, quote unquote, normal people do all the time, basic stuff, like take the trash out and open the mail and pay bills and mm-hmm. shave, things like that, <laughs> right, you know, right. that, that I just never did, you know, I never made them a priority. I, I, they were burdensome things to do, these simple things, these small little things. And now I'm sober 12 plus years, and I kid you not, I still, when I take the garbage out, when I open my mail, when I shave, which I do almost every day, I'm still incredibly grateful for the fact that I'm doing those things. And I, in my mind, celebrate them ever so briefly as small victories. They are wins for me because I shouldn't be here to do any of these things. And shaving is 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 one that that is particularly meaningful to me because I had gotten to a point as an active addict where I didn't want to shave because I couldn't stand to stand in front of a mirror and see myself, which you have to do in order to shave your face. And I just couldn't look at myself. I felt such shame. I was defeated. Um, and, and so now I shave every day and I feel really good about it. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. You know, it's true. I I think one of the, you know, one of my favorite things about your story and something that I relate to is, is your embrace of the traditional path of 12 step and, and, and how much you appreciate, you know, what the program has offered you and how it's changed your life and how you've been able to maintain your involvement in the program at a very immersive, you know, highest priority level. And I suspect that if you were still editing details magazine, you would be, there would be articles in the magazine about, you know, ayahuasca, and you know new protocols and treatments for addiction and everything we thought we knew about addiction is wrong and look i'm somebody who got sober in a treatment center and you know showed up at aa in los angeles and and just basically went in full bore you know and it's still you know the most important thing in my life and it's just interesting to over the over the years like you know i got sober in 98 like to see these trends kind of come and go and, and, you know, how people respond to, um, you know, what worked for me and, you know, are always kind of coming up with new and different ways. And it's like, all I know, man, is that like AA works. Right. 
Uh, it's been a miracle in my life. Like, it, you know, the arc of my life is absurd. And I am privileged to be able to sit across with and participate in a community of people where I see broken people come in and they are welcomed and embraced and loved and cared for in the most selfless way. And I've seen lives change in the most dramatic ways possible. And like, that's my experience. That's I don't know what else experience. to tell you, man. <laughs> that's, you know what I mean? And, and again, yeah, so. you can only share your experience, yeah. right? I, I can't say, hey, this is the right way to do it and this is the wrong way to do it because I actually don't believe that there is a right way mm -hmm. and a wrong way. Yeah, and I don't have an opinion. I have friends that have gotten sober in different so ways too, and so that's do I. fine. And that's awesome. You know? That's yeah. amazing. There are lots of different paths to recovery. All I can say is that for me, the 12-step program and specifically AA um, is, is what does it for me. And, and making meetings a priority in my life is, is incredibly important to me because, and I do it still to, to this day, mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, I try to get to two or three meetings a week, you know, if I can, and sometimes more if I have the ability to do more. It's incredibly, incredibly important for me because I like the way that I approach my life now. And I am far from perfect. God knows I'm far from perfect, but I am present. I try to stay healthy. I try to be accountable for my shit, for my actions, for my behavior. These are things that I was a blamer. You know, I would point the finger at anyone yeah. and everyone. Now I, 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 take stock in what I've done to contribute to kind of where I am or, or if some situation or argument or whatever the case may be. And uh, the, for me, that's been with the help and support of the 12-step program and the fellowship of, of men and women who are in the 12-step uh, uh, program. And so, um, like I said, there's no one path, but this has been my path, uh -huh. and it's it's been pretty stellar. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really has. How do you think about the tradition of anonymity now? Being somebody who's written a book about this, and is somebody who you know is of the media. Um, I have my thoughts on this are actually sort of evolving as we speak. Um, I believe in anonymity. I think I think it's a very individual. Uh, I think it's a it's a big decision if you choose to break your anonymity and 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 speak openly about your your recovery. Um, uh, I think that um, we we live in a culture that um, I, I think the stigma is real, and 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 I think it's important for me to say that. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping, as are others who who speak publicly about their addiction and alcoholism. Uh, to destigmatize this, and we we know that this isn't a moral failure. This is this is a condition. This is part of the human condition. This isn't this is a disease, um, and I think it's it's been categorized as such, you know, uh, by the American Medical Association. This is this is a real thing. This isn't a lack of willpower. This isn't someone that just can't get it together. Man, come mm -hmm. on, like it isn't though. It's not that. Um, and so lots of people have come, come out and, and, and disclosed, um, that they're addicts or, or alcoholics. And, and, and I think, uh, and I'm happy to have done it and I'm happy to have written this book and share my story in an effort to show people that either are struggling with this or it's touching their lives in some way that there mm -hmm. is hope because 
I truly believe, and we hear a lot of people say this, if I can do it, meaning find sobriety, anyone can. Um, uh, that said, I, I think the stigma is real. And I think that um, there are people out there that are like, will publicly be like, oh man, awesome. You wrote this yeah. book, that's super brave. And I know this is gonna mm -hmm. help a lot of people. Um, you know, but, uh, but I think privately are, are, are judging. I really do believe that not yeah. everyone, of course, you know, but I, I just, I think that this is going to be a tough nut to crack, you know, I really do. And, and again, I'm, I'm sharing my story to help crack that nut, if you will, you know, but, um, but I, I think, I think in 2020, like the stigma is, is real, you know, and, yeah. and, and I, encourage people to, to ask for help, you know? And if you, I was terrified to ask for help. I didn't want to lose this plum job that I had, which by the way, I kept for an additional eight years after I got sober. Right. But I was terrified I was gonna lose that. I didn't want to, to, to lose my marriage, you know, and I ultimately ended up getting divorced. But in that, in that moment, I was about to be a dad. I didn't want to lose that. And I didn't want people to judge me. I didn't want people to go, oh my God, he's an addict. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of that. So I'm sharing my story to, uh, and as have others, of course, uh, to, to work toward destigmatizing this this addiction. Mm -hmm. What is your sense of, of, of what can be done about the opioid crisis? I mean, I, it's dark. It is dark and it is devastating communities, whole communities in this country. And it's really sweeping across our country in, in, um, in an incredibly powerful way. Uh, I think we need to talk about it. And I think we have to be careful also, right? We're in an election cycle. So we hear it come up at debates mm -hmm. and we hear, yes, we're gonna fight this opioid epidemic and yes, we're gonna crush it and and we're hard at work on it. And, 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 and that to some degree may be true. And I think it's nice that it's being mentioned. I think it's important that it's being mentioned. But I think in order to really, um, see an impact, to make an impact here, we have to do a number of things. I think we need to focus on prevention. I think we need to focus on education. I think we need to focus on treatment. I think we need to, I, you know, as you pointed out, you know, had the luxury and the privilege. I had have had a privileged life and I know that, and I don't make excuses for that. Um, uh, and I, but I, I understand that I'm really aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm aware of the fact that even getting sober, I had a family a mom and, and, and a family and mom and a dad and a brother and a stepfather and, and all these people that opened their arms and brought me home. Including David Copperfield, which we didn't talk about. <laughs> including the magician, David <laughs> yeah, Copperfield. Like, who <laughs> that's, some, that's a high privilege. Yeah. David Copperfield, come and stay at my who place. Factors you... <laughs> heavily into <laughs> yeah, my story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had that, I yeah. had the ability to go to an outpatient program. Um, so, so with respect to treatment, you know, I really believe that it can't be easier to get the drug than it is to get the treatment. And in, a, and, and in huge portions of this country, that's precisely the case. It's just mm -hmm. so much easier to find more drugs than it is to find treatment. And so there need to be strong treatment options across this country, even if it's peer-based treatment, you know, 12 step, whatever the case may be, where people can, can go to get help. 
and don't have to spend and don't have to do anything. I had the luxury of being able to do that. There are people that go off to, to incredibly expensive rehabs and they can afford to do that or have insurance that covers that. And that's wonderful. And I encourage you to do that if you have the resources mm -hmm. to do that. But, but you know, f um, creating treatment options that are, are um, available to everyone that is impacted by this in this country, because this, this opioid epidemic is impacting everyone. It doesn't discriminate, right? It's the great equalizer, man. I was a New York City media executive, grossly overpaid. I had a great life. That didn't matter. It's impacting absolutely everyone. And there are those that, that need treatment options that don't get them. So I think yeah. that's really important. And I think, you know, federal appropriations need to sort of be earmarked for that. And they need to be long-term, not like, yeah, we're going to throw a couple years worth of, mm -hmm. of funding here and see where things go. And we're going to, you know, I think this is, this is real and it is incredibly, incredibly hard to stop. Yeah. I think one of the things Dr. Drew said in your conversation was we need to make treatment as available as the drugs themselves, right? Like it needs to be freely available and accessible. I mean, out here in Malibu, I think Malibu has the highest percentage of like halfway houses and rehabs of anywhere in the country, I mean, but so many of them are real estate plays. Like they get these fancy houses and they know that they can rent these rooms out at an insane price. And it just becomes these profit centers that really aren't rooted in, you know, the, the proper motivation to help people and help people that can't afford this kind of thing. Or on top of that are, are at times staffed by people that aren't as qualified yeah. as they need to be to yeah. offer that help. Yeah, 100%. Um, what is your daily kind of, you talked about your gratitude list and and you know going to a couple of meetings a week, but like what is the daily practice for you? So the daily practice for me starts with gratitude. Like I said, I think, you know, I, I am grateful for every day that I have because I really don't think that I should still be here. Um, and so I, I take a minute and, and take stock of that, you know, and, or at least try to every day. Um, I've, I'm working toward, I almost just told you a lie. Um, I was like, I meditate every day. Um, like, no, I don't. Um, but just right there, like that instance of you almost saying something and catching yourself, like that's sobriety. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, calling myself mm -hmm. out on my right. own bullshit, right? Yeah. To thine own self be true. Like it starts with, it absolutely must start with being honest with yourself, Right. And, and, and that's, that to me is, is everything, you know, like, am I being a good human today? You know, like, am I, um, engaging in meaningful ways with people? And am I apologizing if I owe someone an apology? Am I judging someone when I shouldn't be judging them because mm -hmm. Jesus, the Lord knows like, who am I to judge? Right. Um, so it's just sort of like keeping myself in check. So, so right. I don't meditate every day. I don't come close to meditating every day, but I am trying to bring meditation into my life more and more because it is like a game changer when, when, when I'm able to do it, yeah. you know? So gratitude, meditation, I, I try to take some time, um, to, to have like a strong spiritual connection and, and just sort of acknowledge, uh, that like I'm here for, for a reason. Uh, I try to be super present now. I was never present. I lived a life of not showing up in any way emotionally, 
person, like physically. Um, I just was never there. Mm-hmm. And so I try to be present in, in every way that I possibly can today and, and um, show up for people when I say I'm going to show up for them. You know, addiction is, is lonely and terrifying at times. And um, so I, I, if, if I can be present for people, if I can be present for myself, and more than anything else, I'm present for my kids. Man, I'm a sober dad, right? So and you have three kids, right? I have three mm-hmm. sons, and they've only ever known me as a sober man. And that is like the greatest gift of sobriety for me. And I, I, I work, I work to, to earn that and deserve that every day. Being a dad is why I believe I was given a second. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's hard for me. I can't even get emotional. Is why I believe I'm, I, I'm here. And so I try to be super, super present for them. Um, I try to eat healthy when I can, Uh you know? I mean, I sort of like don't want to open that can of worms with you. (laughs) Your diet during the (laughs) heavy pill popping phase is insane. Yeah, it was really out of control and it was really unhealthy and and could have killed me just as quickly as the addiction Uh could have. I was eating microwaving Ben and Jerry's ice cream and just chugging it right from the, right from the container, you know? So, um, you know, I try to be, I try to be healthy, man. And I try to stay small, you know, I try to, 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 to live, like be really good with, with, with living like a good small life, you know? Um, and, um, uh, a friend of mine, Laura McCowan, uh, has re- recently written a, a, a memoir called We Are the Luckiest. And uh, there's a chapter in there where she talks about uh, sitting down with someone else in recovery who'd been an old timer, you know, and she's new and fucking miserable and missing her old life. And she sits down at this restaurant with this person and says, like, how, like, what's your life like today? And, and, and I mean, I'm completely bastardizing her beautiful, uh-huh. this chapter in her book, but, and this woman says, I have a nice little life. And at first Laura's like, who wants that? Right. You know, I have a nice, a nice little, little life, life now. Yeah. And, and I'm, uh, you know, so thank you for that, Laura. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good. Beautiful. Um, in writing the book, who were like, you know, there's a whole, genre of you know addiction yarns out there like some good some not so good like i would imagine like burroughs he you know well i will say when i was writing the book i stayed away from them Uh because i didn't want to be overly influenced in any way be influenced by what i was reading Uh and so i i purposely kept kept away from them um, that said, it, it, there are people that have written, I think, quite beautifully about, about addiction and about recovery. Um, and, uh, and certainly Augustine Burroughs is one of those people. I think Augustine has done it also with great humor, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. is, which I, th- which I think is important. Um, and, uh, but there's, there's, there's so many great works out there. David Carr, uh, I think right. did it masterfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there are, there, there are others, Mary Carr, Mm -hmm. um, there, there are, there are, there are many others. And what was the motivation in writing this book now? I mean, you've been sober for a while at this point, like, how did this come about? 
I um, had heard of all of the vast riches that befall authors. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the ultimate get rich quick scheme. Exactly. Um, I just, I felt like I had stories to share. Um, if for, for no other reason, I wanted to just put them down on paper to, to, to share mm -hmm. with my kids one day. Um, I, uh, started writing them and, and, and it turned into a, a book. Um, I think, I think it's, I think it's really important for people to just know that there's a path out. And I, and, and because when I was actively using, I would look at these books and I would hear stories. I, I remember really quite vividly being an active addict and like just being zonked out on pills and like sitting on my sofa with probably like a cigarette, like burning down to my knuckles, you know, and, and, uh, you know, empty you know, Ben and Jerry's containers, right. you know, around me, like it wasn't pretty. Um, uh, and watching like on some entertainment TV show, Entertainment Tonight or something like that, like, like this celebrity, like going into rehab, you know, and I remember 30 days later sitting on that sofa, I had moved, but it would look like I hadn't. Mm -hmm. And, and seeing the report so-and-so out of rehab and, you know, you know, openly, publicly addressing for the first time, you know, their their new recovery and thinking, oh my God, like I could have done it in these 30 in days. In that period of time where you hadn't moved. I could yeah. have, I could have done it and I would feel worse and worse about myself, you know, um, because I wanted to stop. I was ready. I really was desperate mm -hmm. to stop. Um, so my point is, I think people sharing their, their stories, um, helps. It didn't help get me off that couch. It didn't help me from, stop me from going to getting the, the next series of prescriptions, but the seed was but it planted. Was, yeah, it was a domino in, in, in that process. It was. Right? So if my book can, can be that for someone, I think that that's important. I also think that it's important for people that don't know addiction, that, that, haven't lived with it or been exposed to it through a family member or loved one, just to see a glimpse into yeah. what, what it looks like. And so um, that, that was part of the motivating factor also. It was like, hey, take a look at, at how awful this can get and try to understand that this is, this is really all consuming. And, and this book will give you a glimpse of that. Well, with 130 people dying every single day from this very condition, uh, none of us are more than one or two people away from somebody who is currently suffering from this. So the time, you know, is now for this conversation more than ever. And the need for solutions, uh, you know, begins with understanding. And understanding means, you know, wrapping your head around the experience of what it is like to endure something like this. So I applaud you for writing the book. And I think the best way to land this plane is to have you kind of speak to the addict who perhaps is listening right now, that person who might be on the couch, you know, with some Ben and Jerry's <laughs> right. uh, containers listening to this, but um, unsure about what that first step looks like. I think that that first step looks like acknowledging that you are an, an addict. And, and for me, I struggled with that for a long time. And then I eventually acknowledged that I was an addict while I was still using. Mm -hmm. And I used for a while longer after that. But to acknowledge, I mean, it's, it's really simplify it, to acknowledge a powerlessness over 
over this addiction. There's nothing that you, uh, it's not going to go away on its own and you need to step up and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You have to be ready and you have to step forward and say, I'm ready. And I think that's the most important first step is to acknowledge it and to, and to reach out and ask for help. You don't have to do it publicly. You don't have to tweet about it or post about it, but you, you should reach out and ask for help because you cannot do it alone. It is incredibly difficult to do it alone. And I, I try. Every, everybody tries first. Yeah. They so, try it into, until they realize it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah. So, so my advice uh -huh. to that person would be, okay, let's own this. Like this mm -hmm. is where you are and, um, and let's ask for help because help is there. And, and, and I was, was welcomed uh, into a community of people, uh, into the recovery community in ways that I never, ever thought would, would have uh, been possible. And just the pure realization that your situation is not unique, right? Like there's this oh. idea like that whatever you're enduring and suffering is, is is something that no other human being could possibly understand. That's that's a fact, right? That you're you're there and you're you are thinking to yourself, I understand that people get sober from this. I understand people have done it, but no one is as bad off as I am. And and it, no one, like, you know, it, it, it hasn't gotten this bad with anyone else on the face of the earth. And so it's pointless for me to to step forward and say, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and, 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 and take some action here. And that's just absolute bullshit, right? Like we are run of the mill, yeah. garden variety, dime a dozen drug addicts. Whether or not, you know, like that's what's at the core of my book, quite mm -hmm. frankly, is that there's all this weird, crazy stuff. I had access to all of these people and and um, David Copperfield and-, and Right, uh, you're the ultimate, like, don't you know who I think I am? And this mashup of of like, you know, an e sort of an overinflated ego with massive insecurity. Absolutely, that's precisely mm -hmm. what I was. Um, uh, but at its core, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a common drug addict and, and it's an incredibly common story. And, um, and there, there is a path out, but no one else can put you on that path. You have to be willing to say, okay, I'm ready to sort of start my walk down this path. And no one can say it for you. I can't say it for you. Parents can't say it for you. Wives, children, husbands. It just, it's not gonna happen until you're ready to say, all right, let's do this. Right, and so what about the person who's listening who has that person in their life that's suffering and they feel powerless to help that person? I mean, I get tons of emails like this, like, I don't know what to do. My spouse, my boyfriend, my girl, whatever. I, I get like, a lot of those I mean? emails, yeah. And it's like, you know, you you kind of spoke to it already. It's it's about willingness, and willingness is something that you cannot compel in another individual. Short of their willingness, you're pretty limited in how you can you know show up for somebody in this situation. You are. It's 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 an awful position to be in to watch someone that you love and care about, um, you know, slowly kill themselves because that's precisely what's happening. Um, and worse, hear them deny it and get angry at you for suggesting it, you know? So uh, I have a tremendous amount of, of love and respect for the people that are in the lives of addicts and, and stay in those lives and continue to be loving mm -hmm. and supportive. And I, I, I admire that and am grateful, so grateful that there are people out there like that. I think it's incredibly important to, to make sure that you're not enabling 
an addict, you know, it can be really easy to do that. Uh, and I don't recommend doing that, but I also don't recommend shutting them out of your life. I think there's, there's, there's some in between and that's where you should live. Be supportive. Don't stop loving. Um, and but, take care of yourself in the meantime. And absolutely, you know, right. As you say, anytime you get on a plane, you know, make sure your, your oxygen mask is on first before you, you know, go to help others, like take care of yourself. And, and that is incredibly important. Um, but Listen, um, you know, uh, call them out on their shit also, you know, um, forgive the language, yeah. but like, don't just see, see behavior that is telling and off and ignore it, you know, call them on it. Don't do it in an aggressive way, but call them on it. Let them know that you're on to them. They're going to deny it. They're going to lie to you, but, you know, be loving and supportive, but don't let them get away with mm -hmm. it. hundred percent. Um, we did it. We did it, man. It's good. Yeah, it was great. That was pretty good. How do you I, feel? I, I feel really good. You feel all right? I feel really good. I feel like- You don't feel like you did when you sat next to Dr. Drew on that flight? <laughs> <laughs> and he killed your high? He was the <laughs> ultimate buzzkill, no. Dr. Drew. All right. I feel, I think the only thing that could like make this even one notch better would be like a little Rick Springfield to just take it. Right, off. well, there's a guitar behind you if you want to play it and uh, sing it. And you're more than welcome <laughs> to. Next time. All right, man, thanks. So uh, the book is called As Needed for Pain. Um, as I said, I love a good addiction yarn and I'm, I'm not done with this book yet. I'm, I'm just cracking into it, but um, it's quite a yarn. So congratulations on it. Um, I think it's gonna help a lot of people. Uh, check it out. Even if you just wanna read about stories with rock stars in the back of limos or you know, <laughs> trying to cop heroin in MacArthur Park and... <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of banana shit in this book and it's super entertaining, but also really speaks to the heart of, of you know, what this disease is and, and how to see your way through it. So thank you for your service. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate All it. All right, man. And if you want to connect with... Uh, with Dan, what's the best way? Dan at Dan Perez NY on Twitter. So right, so uh, at Dan Paris NY. Paris, uh, I did it wrong. That's all right, I man. It happens. Perez. It happens all the time. Here's the other thing: like you didn't read your audiobook. I know I didn't. And the guy says Perez. I know, and I'm like, and I, I know it's Paris. I have such an issue yeah. with that, but it is what it is. Um, Why didn't you read your audiobook? You know, I I uh, I Harper College was like we, we we really want to have an actor do this, and I was like, <laughs> okay. They told me that too, and I was like, no way. And, 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 and yeah. my editor was like, if you. Really really want, but uh -huh. we recommend, and I was like, all right, whatever. And so I should have, um, but, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's Dan Paris. Uh, so at, uh, Instagram, it's, uh, Dan underscore Paris, P E R E S and Twitter. It's at Dan Paris, also P E R E S N Y. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's where I am. All right, cool, man. And Jeff, we missed you. Yeah, Jeff. Love Next you, time man. we'll do it. All three of us together. All right. Peace. I warned you, right? I told you it was powerful. What incredible story. I just want to thank Dan again for his courage, his strength, his hope, his willingness to share his incredible story of despair and salvation in service to those that still suffer. And if you find yourself stuck in some version of Dan's story in this cycle of addiction, please, please reach out for help. Do not try to do this alone. You can find an AA meeting in your area by going to aa.org. And you can also call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Helpline 24-7 at 1-800-662-HELP. 
Meanwhile, pick up Dan's new book, As Needed for Pain. It's really a great read. And visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com to learn more about everything Dan Paris and the subjects and topics that we discussed today. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for creating the video version of the show and all the short clips that we spread around on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK for advertiser relationships. And theme music by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks, you guys. See you next time. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.